Last week we discussed Judges 3, verses 7 through 11. And today I'm excited to be teaching through verses 12 through 31. I remember every time I would read through the whole book of Judges, um, I would hope that Pastor Ron would schedule me for this section. And I'm, you know, I'm glad I was able to get this section. Um, so I'm excited to go through this. Hopefully you'll see why in a few minutes. Um, it's very much a man's passage <laughs> filled with action and adventure, although I think everyone will enjoy it. And you'll see why as we get into it. Uh, but with that said, let's jump right into the passage. Uh, if you have your Bible, let's go right into Judges 3, starting with verse 12 through 31. I'll go ahead and read it. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal, and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. <laughs> then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. And Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed, at that time, about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued 
that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for eight, 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Amen. So you see why it's a man's fashion. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, to help us through the study, I divided the passages, or the passage that we just read, into three points, and you'll see it on your handout. Point number one, I'm going to talk about the historical background of the Moabites and Eglon, okay? And then point number two, I titled it Hero or Villain, okay? So we're going to talk about the character of, uh, of Ehud, and then also in parentheses, we're going to talk about the narrative, we're going to go through the story, and also I want to talk about the author's aim, okay? I put humor, satire, was this, was this intended to be humorous? Was this story intended to, you know... You know, make us laugh, or, or you know, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna talk about it. What kind of a what kind of a story this was, and then point number three is the theological and practical implications. How how in the world do we apply such story to our lives? And we'll we'll get into that. Uh, so let's look at point number one: historical background of the Moabites and Eglon. So in this occasion, in this situation, it's interesting that the Lord chooses to use the Moabites, right, and the king of Moab to bring punishment to Israel, who once again fell into a state of disobedience. And we see that our passage begins by stating that they, again, as, you, have you, as you've seen uh, becoming sort of a pattern in the book of Judges, that they, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay? So the people of God once again sinned against the Lord, and uh, they were due for punishment from God. But what makes it interesting is that, is that God would use the Moabites, is that they are not included among the peoples of the land whom God left to test Israel. If you remember from the previous studies, God had providentially left a few pagan nations to still live among the people of God, and so, so that they would be used to test Israel. Um, and let's look at the list of the nations that were left with Israel. Can someone read it from afar? Font is a little small, but this is Judges 3 3 to 6. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonites, the who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Haman. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether. Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves to wives, and their daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Yeah, thank you. So here we see that the Moabites are not listed in that list. All right? Another fact that makes this interesting and why God would use the Moabites against God's people is the fact that they, the Moabites, were relatives of the Israelites, having descended from Abraham's nephew, Lot. Uh, you see that in Genesis 19, 36 through 37. I'll read it. Um, it says, Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. 
the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites till this day. So it was like the Israelites going against their cousins, basically. And at one point, a previous Moabite king by the name of Balak attempted to destroy the nation of Israel because he had seen how Israel seemed to be blessed by God. They even hired a prophet to curse this nation, and yet, instead of cursing them, he blessed them. Okay, this is a story that you see in uh, Numbers 22 and 23. Moab, at that point, was unsuccessful over Israel. Uh, and yet, we see from the main passage that we've been reading, that the Lord ironically brings this nation of the Moabites into a rise in power over Israel. Uh, and let's, let's look back at the main passage here, uh, Judges 3, starting with verse 12 through 13. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, so they rose in power. Uh, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. So here we see that the Lord strengthened them and used the Ammonites and the Amalekites as allies to the Moabites to defeat Israel. So they joined forces with these other nations so that they can finally come into power over God's people. Now it seems as if Eglon, the king of, of the Moabites, is a powerful ruler uh, of great achievement. Right? As you read the story, you see some of these characteristics that are describing Eglon and you see he was a powerful ruler. He was great in achievement. After all, he has risen in power and he has took possession of the city of Palms, which was not the land of Moab, but actually uh, alluded to Jericho, uh, which apparently Eglon selects as his base of operations and rule. This is where he sat in his throne. So he seems to be a man of power and wealth, especially when, he, uh, especially when we see more of a, a description about his location as we read further in the later passages. But again, aside from Eglon's achievements, the narrator seems to characterize him as somewhat of a comic figure, like a buffoon. Most, most commentators would agree with this. And surely most Israelites, when, when reading this account, this passage, uh, they would have spotted, even by his name, which Eglon is a form of Egel, which is like bull or calf, or even the word agal, which means round and rotund. Uh, so, you know, every time his name is mentioned, uh, the, the Israelites would have identified him as a, a character that was sort of silly, sort of uh, comic, a buffoon. Also, every time his name is mentioned from verses 12 through 17, you'll see the words King of Moab after his name, right? From that beginning section of the passage that we've been reading. Even Ehud, when he talks to him, you'll see, um, again, when we read it again, he sarcastically says, Oh, King, when speaking to him right before he kills him, right? So he was obviously not reverent over the king. He was a joke to Ehud. And yet we see that after verse 20, the author deliberately avoids calling him king anymore. He doesn't even say his name anymore after verse 20. He's, he becomes somebody, or he, he's somebody and he becomes a nobody 
uh, later on in the passage. So as the book of Judges was being written, it's not like movies, right, where you have musical scores that sort of help you see um, whether this is a comical scene or whether this is an action scene. You have the soundtrack in the back sort of helping you uh, understand how to receive these characters. Uh, however, uh, through, you know, they didn't have that during that time. Obviously, this is written uh, stuff, but we can still see through uh, patterns of, of the way that it was written, uh, sort of the mood um, of how we ought to convey some of these characters. And through the descriptions of him, especially being an obese man, um, and that, that being a reoccurring theme, you'll see that mentioned throughout the passage. Uh, most commentaries would agree that Eglon was intended to be described as a man driven by his flesh, a man of wealth, uh, and, and that's how we ought to see him. Other commentaries say that he was a simple-minded man. In other words, he was quite stupid. He falls into Ehud's flattery and dismisses his bodyguards, leaving him as a defenseless, obese man alone in a room with his enemies. Um, and again, that's just uh, the way that we ought to take this character that we see here in the passage. Okay, so that's sort of a background of the Moab people and, and the king. Let's look at point number two. Point number two is hero or villain. So we'll talk about the narrative and the author's aim in, in this passage. Um, I titled it Hero or Villain because I want us to think honestly about this chapter. What we have here in this chapter is a narrative of a man by the name of Ehud who happens to be God's next cho chosen judge to rescue the people of Israel. And when we think in those terms, we should automatically assume, well, if God selected him, he's, he's the hero, right? He's not a villain. Um, what makes this difficult, though, is not whether Ehud was selected by God for the task, but rather how the task was accomplished. And we, we just read it. He came into a, a king's place and he, he murdered him. He assassinated him. Um, it, it just seems rather difficult to see him as a hero, but we'll get into it. Let's go to the passage um, where the plot of the story um, takes place. Let's look at Judges 3, 16 through 23. Can someone read that? I don't know if you can see it. And Ahud made for himself a sword with two edges. Excuse me. A cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of the Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ahud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the king. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ahud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Haywood said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat, and Haywood reached with his left hand, took the sword with, from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade. And the fat 
he did not pull the sword out of his belt, and the dung came out. Then Ahud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Thank you. So this is this is on some 007 James Bond behind enemy lines secret agent type of uh, status. Oh yeah, TMI, TMI. <laughs> uh, and if you thought that the Bible was boring, you were wrong. This is pretty interesting. Uh, but what we see in this passage is a man that was raised up by God, a, a special man for that matter. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, which. Interestingly, the word Benjamin means son of the right hand. And we see in verse 15 that he was a left-handed man. Other passages suggest that Ehud and the, Benjamin, and the Benjamites were skilled men who were not merely left-handed, but rather skilled in using both left and right hands. So that's also a possibility. Um, he, he just was a skilled man with his left hand. Anyway. God raises Ehud to deliver Israel, and he makes a double-edged sword, which he straps to his right thigh, my right, uh, under his clothing. Okay, so he makes this sword, straps it on his right thigh. Obviously, if he's left-handed, he would use it uh, coming from his, his right thigh. And we see that Ehud approaches the king of Moab as one who came to deliver a tribute to him, right? A sign of honor and praise. But in reality, he came to assassinate him. <laughs> so, he, so as he flatters the king into thinking that he had a secret message for him, the king commands his guards and all who were attending to leave the room. He says, okay, I got a secret message. You guys can go. And, and this is sort of comical. You would think, why would a king do that? Uh, let his guards out and, and stay alone with this uh, random stranger. So again, he flatters the king into thinking that he has a secret message. The king commands his guards and all who are attending to leave the room. And again, if this was a movie, I can picture the camera zooming in Ehud's face as he smirks and says to the king, I have a message for you. And all of a sudden, the musical score in the background intensifies. And instead of a verbal message, Ehud reaches over in his right thigh and delivers the message. The message wasn't a verbal message. This was a message of a double-edged sword piercing through Eglon's stomach. Verse 22 says that the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed, <laughs> closed over the blade. In other words, Ehud jabbed. I mean, if you're sensitive to this, I'm sorry, but Ehud, <laughs> Ehud jabbed the whole of the sword into him that even the handle went in, and the fat covered over the whole blade. Now, this is the part where we can classify as T TMI, right? Uh, too much information here, because we see in the end of that verse that Ehud didn't pull the sword out, and so it said that somehow it caused dung to come out. Um, I'm currently using the ESV. If you have the NASB, it, it says, and the refuse came out. I've never... Uh, use the term refuse to, to, to call that, to call what that is. Uh, but the King James Version says, and the dirt came out. Uh, NIV says, and his bowels discharged. I'm sure we can come up with many creative ways to uh, say what happened there, but we get the picture. Uh, the story goes on in verse 24. 
through 40, I mean through 28. Let's read that part. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he was relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he uh, still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay the Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabs, into your hand. So, in this passage, you can almost sense the humor from the author's point of view. Here you have an example of the silliness and almost simple-mindedness of the king's servants. So the king's servants, they basically waited outside, leaving the king at the hands of some random man who, in reality, was there to assassinate the king. One would imagine that at least one of the servants would think to himself, let me go and double check on the king. Notice that it doesn't say that in verse 24, that when, the, when they saw the doors of the roof chamber locked, that they busted in with urgency, just worried about the king. They didn't do that, right? But rather, what does it say? It says that they thought, this is what they thought. Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. In other words, they were thinking, oh, maybe he's in the toilet. By the way, I think I'm going to start calling the toilet the closet of the cool chamber um, <laughs> from here on out. <laughs> That's just a great way to call the toilet. So when, you, when I'm not around, you know that I'm in the closet of the cool chamber. Um, <laughs> at least at home. Um, Anyways, this passage conveys a very humorous tone. We, we see the silliness of the situation, right? The silliness of the king and the silliness of the reaction from the servants. However, this isn't some form of irreverent hilarity, right? We're not looking at the scripture uh, and looking at passages that were meant to be a silly, slap-happy, nonsensical genre of literature. This is a humor, and this is important, this is a humor... Um, that was intended to convey the absurdity of God's enemies, okay? Uh, even though God may have used the Moabites to discipline Israel, those who were against God's people, and his people are, uh, anyone who's against God's people or anyone who's against God is categorically God's enemies. But it's clear through this account of the absurdity of men who rise up in their position Living in power, sitting on thrones, and yet their end is like that of Eglon. All right, we see him at first being in power, and then what does, he, what, is, what does his life conclude with? Death, right? He becomes insignificant, and he's left lying in his own excrement. And I think the lesson from all this is pretty clear. That when you are, categor when you are categorically enemies with God, God is under no obligation to bestow favor upon you. When you rise in position, think about yourself, when you rise in position, whether at work or even in the government or even in politics or in anything that you do, God is the one allowing it, okay? And if you ever assume credit, at least in the ultimate sense, 
Remember that God is able to humble you as he did many kings in the past. With that said, it's very clear that in today's world, there are many who are in high places who are committing the same error. Many of our so-called kings of our age are in direct rebellion against God with full force. And the proof of this is shown in the moral revolution that we have all been seeing lately in our country. And although we are commanded in Scripture to respect our civil authorities, we, we sort of get a glimpse of how God sees these people. It's pure comedy to the Lord, right? Anyone who attempts to rule a nation and plot from their comparatively small thrones and attempt to do this as enemies of God, as oppressors of God's blessings, as opposers of God's moral law, they are nothing but stand-up comedy for God. Because God will eventually bring his judgment upon them. And that's what we saw with uh, Eglon. Look at what it says in Psalm 2, verse 1 through 4. Can someone read that out loud? Uh, I'm just ending at 4a. So if you can read 1 through 4a. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. So the Lord laughs. In other words, it is complete absurdity when man sets themselves as rulers and kings who assume full control while God is the one who is truly sovereign over all. And anyone opposing the will of God is a joke to him. He sits in the heavens and he laughs. Now, we've discussed the narrative and the author's intent of the story, right? See the humor. But we still have that question on whether Ehud is to be seen as a hero or a villain. Many Christians would have trouble seeing Ehud as a hero since he was so violent and deceitful in his methods of conquering the king of the Moabites. And again, this is understandable. The New Testament would most likely speak against many of the actions done by Ehud. So even though God raised him up and sent him as Israel's savior for the time, I would not doubt that sin was involved in that process. However, I think you'd be missing the whole point of the story if Ehud is simply a character that becomes, you know, another character in Scripture that we should not be like, right? Almost like an example of who not to follow in Scripture. We shouldn't take that approach. Ultimately, ultimately, we know that God has allowed it to happen, and through it, Israel was set free from the Moabites, and in his providence, God has always used sinners, even when things get a bit messy, and in this case, really messy. Yet in the end, justice will be given to all, even those whom he uses for his glory. And this brings me to my last point, point number three. Bill? Yes. You know, when Many times, deceit was used to 
bring down the enemy. Right. And so I don't know that I can agree with that. Yeah, no, actually, uh, I, I was hoping that was more clear, but maybe I wasn't as clear. I actually agree with you what you're saying. In fact, to, to look at him as not a hero is actually missing the point. So he actually is a hero in the sense that God used him regardless of his, you know, regardless of, of how it was done. Now we know that all sin would be accounted for, right? And, and thank God for us that it has been accounted for on, in Christ, right? Christ paid for the sins that we have committed. So you're actually right. Uh, he is to be seen as a hero for the mere fact that God has chosen him to do the task, right? He is someone who accomplishes the task. Not only that, but God was behind him in the sense that God allowed it to happen, and God did this so that Israel would be blessed. So you make a very, very good point. Um, and and that's, that's the point. A lot of people look at the story of Ehud and say, man, we can't count him as a hero because look at all the, look at the way that he accomplished this task. Um, and, and in that sense, I understand. It's difficult because we see he, he, he made a double-edged sword. He came in and deceitfully tricked the king and, and, and killed him and murdered him and escaped. It was messy. And, and I'm sure sin was involved somewhere in there, right? But like you said, he is to be counted as a hero because he was one of God's judges that he appointed to accomplish the task. But very helpful. Thank you for pointing that out. Any, any, any other thoughts, by the way, before I move on to the next point? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one thing, as we, as I get into my last point, um, you, you, one thing that I conclude with, and I'll get there, but um, is that um, if God chooses to do, if God chooses to work in this way, then it's completely justified, right? Because no one deserves God's grace, no one deserves God's protection, and so God can allow these things to happen. God is fully justified. However. In this side of the cross, um, we see that God no longer works in these ways, right? He doesn't send the people of God to go into a land and wipe them out. God doesn't work that way, not because he can't, but because he won't. And the reason why he won't is because of the gospel. It's because, you'll see, and I'll get to it, uh, the real war and the real battle is not flesh and blood anymore. Um, it never really was. However, these things took place to point to the fact that the real war is a spiritual one. And so we're not, walk, we're not walking around with double-edged swords. But in one sense, we are when we speak uh, the gospel. When we speak the word of God, um, it does the job more than it would if we came in and slaughtered um, a group of people. But those are all good points. God is still justified either way. Yeah? There's a comparison in Psalm 137. Mm-hmm. That's when Babylon took Israel captive. Mm-hmm. They were thinking about all that had happened. And the ending of the song is very difficult for a lot of people. Yeah. Because it ends up, uh, because they're thinking about their home in Jerusalem, there's nothing there. And the last couple of verses say, O daughter of Babylon, who will be destroyed. Happy is the one who repays you as you have uh, served us. Happy is the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Right. 
<laughs> yeah. Right. But it was so horrible to be ripped from your own land and to see yeah. all the, the, the warriors killed and then uh, the right. women captive right. and uh, to be ravished and the other women who were pregnant to be ripped open. And they said, Blessed would be the one who does the same thing to you. Right. Right. And it, it's, it, it can be hard to swallow. But uh, we're, we're going to see something similar in the last day. We're going to see uh, when the Lord comes and bring revenge to those who uh, have, have broken God's law. God's going to come and he's going to destroy them. And a lot of those people are family members. <laughs> and you, you think to yourself, well, how in the world, me being saved, am I going to be there and applaud and rejoice with the Lord as he destroys his enemies, and some of those are family members. Uh, so again, it, it's a hard thing to swallow. But and of course, we're not there yet. Um, you know, we're still growing in our understanding, even experientially. Our hearts—it's uh, hard for our hearts to take that. But at least end with this principle that all that God does is right, and when He brings His justice, it's always good. It's always a good thing. Um, you know, our, our, our job is to look at scriptures, understand it, accept it, and, um, and be further conformed into, you know, these standards of God. Uh, we, we ought to also praise God that justice wasn't served to us. And we don't want justice to happen to other people, of course, right? We want them to be saved by grace. We don't want them to be saved. Uh, we don't want them to suffer what they deserve. Because the same way we deserve, what we actually deserve is hell and uh, eternal punishment. Uh, so we, we, we always desire that God would have grace and mercy upon our family members, upon everyone. And that's why we preach the gospel. Um, we don't swing swords, but we swing the sword of the Lord um, so that they would be converted and their heart would be pierced um, and they would be saved. And they don't have to face the justice of God, but they would face the mercy and the grace of God through the gospel. Hopefully, I'll, I'll touch uh, some of those questions uh, in, this, in this final point, point number three, uh, which is the theological and practical implications. One of the key symbols, like I just mentioned, of victory in this passage is the double-edged sword, right, used by Ehud. And this was a sword that Ehud had made for himself. Verse 16 describes it as being a double-edged, and a double-edged sword, and measured about a cubit in length, with which uh, a cubit in length is like this, this long, which is the top of my uh, middle finger to the bottom of my elbow. That's generally what a cubit was. Uh, so it, it actually, it, this is actually quite small for a sword. This sword was intended to be a sword for a one-strike killing, and the average sword for battle was larger. And, and the sharp edge was one-sided, which was intended for swinging. But by the description, uh, this kind of sword was intended to murder with one stab, piercing right through the enemy. Now, the reason why this is significant is because this isn't the way that we today are to deal with our enemies, sort of like what we just spoke about. Although God had purposed for it during the time of Israel's conquest, further revelation from God has revealed through history to where the real battle lies. Right? You see that in Ephesians 6. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, I had a question during one of the earlier classes on what, what are the differences between the Islamic State trying to bring about Sharia law through violent conquest and Christianity's so-called history of violent conquest. My answer is simple. The book of Judges is historical proof that the true war was ne has never been a national one or a racial one or even a tribal one, but rather a spiritual one. That's why each judge kept failing. Because the God of Christianity had proven to us through the account of Judges that even though wars were fought and rulers came and left, mankind would still be prone to sin and disobedience. The real war was spiritual. The real judge would not only be a physical, but a spiritual ruler, Jesus Christ. And our real weapon would not be that of a physical sword, but a spiritual sword, namely the word of God. This is why other religions need to understand the progressive revelation of God through the Bible and how all things find their ultimate reality in Christ Jesus. So, true conquest is not done through physical means, but through the hearts of men by the proclamation of the gospel and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the sword is not the means of advancing God's kingdom, but rather the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. Look at the following verses on the uh, screen. Ephesians 6.17 says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Look at Hebrews 4.12. says, For the Word of God is living and active, notice I underline here, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? Sharper than Ehud's two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This, this is a sword that does the job. So here we see the real weapon of war that makes real change and real conquest. And so we must understand these things from this side of God's revelation. We have the full counsel now. We can actually look and see how the story progresses and where the real battle is. So uh, conclusion... The story concludes, or begins to conclude, uh, in verse 26, where it says, Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies the Moabites in your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at, about, uh, at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of uh, Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goat, and he also saved Israel. So the story concludes with Ehud escaping Eglon's place after murdering him. 
and calling the armies of Israel to block the fords of the Jordan, right, which were the bridges that would allow them to try to escape, and they blocked it. And by blocking them, they were able to defeat that whole nation. And Israel took over the land, and the scripture says that they had rest again for 80 years uh, from that point on. <clears throat> but as you've already suspected, probably, um, as you already know, this is only the end of another cycle that keeps repeating in Israel's history, right? Once a ruler dies, Israel falls back into sin. God punishes them by giving them over into the hands of another enemy nation. And then they finally cry out to God and God saves them through another ruler and leads them to another point of rest. <clears throat> and we already see this happening in, in the last verse. Verse 31, it says, After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goat. And he also saved Israel. So it's just nonstop. But again, this is to show through Israel's history of mankind's need of a true Savior, which we have by God's, by God's grace. And we've been able to fully trust in him, which is, which is Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for that. Uh, any questions on on uh, on what we talked about before I close out? Yeah. Um, I was um, thinking about what you said about uh, the family members that we were supposed to see suffer judgment by God's hands, and there was a Q and A at uh, Lake Mirror Conference, mm -hmm. and a question came up. You know, what are we, what, how are you supposed to feel when you see that the Lord is going to enact that? Very helpful, yeah. Very good. Very true. Yeah, anyone else? Thoughts? So I thought you brought up a good point when you're talking about you know, how we can look at the Old Testament and, and see different things and wonder about the application. And this is where it's really important, I think, in interpreting the Bible correctly mm -hmm. is to allow the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament. Amen that it looks back for us. And we look at passages, and what we have to ask ourselves, are these descriptive, mm -hmm. simply describing for us what happened, right. or are they prescriptive? Right. Are they something that we should be looking at and thinking through how to apply it? Sometimes you have to work through that. So right. it takes effort at times to look at these different things and look at them correctly through the lens of Scripture and allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Right. Because if we leave it to ourselves, we're fallible people, and we'll come up with wrong interpretations Anyone else? Okay. Let me pray. Our Father, we recognize our we recognize your infinite wisdom and in how you bring about your purposes in history. 
Lord, we recognize that you are imminently involved in all the areas of our life. You are not a God who watches history unfold in its own. You are a God who is actively moving all things according to your plan. And for that, we praise your name. May we never assume power independent from you. May this account and judges remind us of that. And may we also remember what it points to. Father, the real battle is not flesh and blood, but a spiritual one that is fought, not with a physical weapon, but a spiritual one that is sharper than any double-edged sword, the word of God. So may, the, may that be the sword that we live and, and die by, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.